It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I came on kind of hot yesterday. I was really riled up over a couple of stories. And later in the day, I was thinking, all right, you know what? Today's Friday. People are thinking about what they're doing from the weekend. I'll get in my Media Buzz plug. And I'll just lower the temperature a little bit. Well, seemed like a good idea, but alas, I cannot do that. Um, there is a story that just makes your blood boil. And it's about Israel much more than it is Hamas. And by the way, the war is back on. Get to that in a second. After seven days, the two sides couldn't agree on extending the temporary truce. And so the bombing has resumed. And we're back to where we have been, which is, of course, a state of war. This New York Times story, terrific reporting, and enough to just make you tear your hair out. Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened. Documents, emails, and interviews show. They had it. Israelis had a copy of the battle plan, which was codenamed Jericho Wall. And it outlined, point by point, exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to the deaths of about 1,200 people. But you know what happened? Israeli military and intelligence officials just dismissed it, saying, yeah, it's just aspirational, too difficult for Hamas to carry out. I mean, the equivalent would be American intelligence officials a year before 9-11 obtaining a plan and saying, it just said, uh, you know, we're going to hijack a bunch of airplanes and fly them into buildings in New York and Washington. And the reaction being, eh, that's pretty hard to pull off. I don't, eh, this is just a fantasy. So, what this plan said was exactly what happened. Hamas terrorists would overwhelm the fortifications around the Gaza Strip, take over Israeli cities, storm key military bases. And as the Times, which is not known for sensationalism in these kinds of matters, says Hamas followed the blueprint with a shocking precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outset of the attack, drones to knock out the security cameras, and automated machine guns along the border, and gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders, on motorcycles, and on foot, all of which happened on October 7th. Detail, it had details about the location and size of Israeli military forces, communication hubs, 
other sensitive information. And it isn't like one person saw this and it didn't go up the chain of command. The document, uh, the document circulated widely among Israeli military and intelligence officials, the leaders. But, again, experts determined that an attack of that scale and ambition was beyond Hamas's capabilities. It is unclear, and I'm sure the uh, Israeli press will be following up on this, whether Benjamin Netanyahu or other top political leaders saw the document. I mean, either way, it looks horrible. If he didn't see it, it's negligence on the part of senior military and intelligence officials. If he did see it and dismissed it, it's even worse. They're both bad. Uh, I, I don't see how Netanyahu survives this. I mean, I think he survives during the course of the war. He's already incredibly unpopular as much of the public, even his own allies, blame him and his government for not adequately preparing for the kind of attack, the gruesome, brutal, terrorist attack that led to the killings, the murder of all kinds of people, music festival goers, babies, grandmothers, grandfathers, the absolute desecration of the bodies, burning people alive. I mean, you know this. I could go on and on. So, according to a military assessment, this was part of the documents obtained by the Times, it is not yet possible to determine whether the plan has been fully accepted and how it will be manifested. This is after the Israelis got the plan. Okay, this goes on. In July, three months before the attacks, a veteran analyst with Israel's Signals Intelligence Agency warned that Hamas had conducted an intense day-long training exercise that appeared similar to what was outlined in the blueprint. But a colonel in the Gaza division brushed it off, brushed off her concerns. I utterly refute that the scenario is imaginary, this analyst wrote in the email exchanges. She said this fully matched the content of Jericho Wall. It is a plan designed to start a war. It is not just a raid on a village. Okay, she got it. The colonel didn't. I mean, they actually conducted the exercises in full view of Israeli officials. And this final sentence that I'm going to quote for you kind of sums it up. Underpinning all these failures was a single, fatally inaccurate belief that Hamas lacked the capability to attack and would not dare to do so. That belief was so ingrained in the Israeli government, officials said, that they disregarded Growing evidence to the contrary. Okay. As for the state of war, the ceasefire collapsed. The war resumed. The truce expired at 7 a.m. 
local time, midnight on the East Coast here, Israel said it had intercepted a projectile fired from Gaza. And literally just moments after the deadline passed, Israel announced it was restarting military operations and Israeli airstrikes once again were unleashed. International mediators said the talks were continuing. Doesn't look good, folks. I mean, once you start the war again. Bibi saying in a statement, the government of Israel is committed to achieving the war aims, freeing our hostages, eliminating Hamas, and ensuring Gaza will never again pose a threat to the residents of Israel. Hamas said it offered to release more hostages, including older people, but that Israel made a prior decision to resume the criminal aggression. Just a minute here. You can't accuse Israel of criminal aggression. I understand many people. It's not even an occupation in Gaza. It is in the West Bank. When it's your side that launched these horrific attacks, that took civilians hostage, that had utter disregard for whether people who were being killed or kidnapped were two years old or four years old or 85 years old. So yesterday, the final day of the what turned out to be a seven-day ceasefire, Hamas releasing eight hostages, two fewer than expected, 94 since the truce began. And this came after uh, Tony Blinken went to the Middle East and certainly emphasized uh, that if Israel was going to resume the war, it had to be a lot more careful about minimizing civilian casualties. And... After the meeting, you know, look, Bibi comes out and says, we've sworn, I have sworn, to eliminate Hamas. Nothing will stop us. And I guess uh, I didn't exactly achieve an even emotional tone there. But then this is just unbelievable. This is an unbelievable story. And Israel is issuing some maps showing where the safe evacuation zones are and aren't throughout Gaza. And I think that's a direct result of the pressure from the U.S. Uh, to not just perhaps indiscriminately bomb targets where a lot of civilians are going to be killed. And a little footnote here. little footnote is this. While the war was... At full blast in late October, Pope Francis had a phone call with the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog. And the Pope said it is forbidden to respond to terror with terror, according to the Washington Post. Uh, Herzog protested, saying that the Israeli government was doing what was needed in Gaza to defend its own people. The Pope said those responsible should indeed be held accountable, but not civilians. And the Pope then said publicly, this has gone beyond war, this is terrorism. And the call went so badly that Israel didn't release it, didn't want it 
publicly known that Pope Francis had attempted to intervene. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number two, let's catch up with Donald Trump. Uh, I mentioned in previous podcasts that he has had a back and forth with the Wall Street Journal editorial page over his pronouncement that if re- if reelected, I guess reelected is the right term, even though he's not president now, uh, that he will get rid of Obamacare and find something better, as he also promised to do when he was in the White House. Okay, here comes the post. The Wall Street Journal editorial page is really a mess. The globalist paper sucks. Its influence is badly waning, and the concept of make America great again is not exactly music to their ears. They fought me hard in 2016, but when I won, Rupert Murdoch was the first to call. Great going, he said. Let's have lunch. He called often, never getting what he wanted to get. Doesn't explain what that is. Um, Now he's given up on a hopeless Ron DeSanctimonious and so forth. 2024, says the former president, will be a globalist defeat, all caps, and a rebuke to the losers at the WSJ who've gotten almost nothing right for years. Also on the Trump front, the gag order, which had been temporarily lifted in that New York fraud civil trial, was reinstated yesterday. But all the people, such as court staff, that Donald Trump could not attack. Remember, he's been so far fined $15,000 about this. Well, minutes later, Trump showed that He was undeterred, posting on True Social about Judge Arthur Ngoron. This is the judge's wife and family that are putting these things out. I am not entitled to a jury under this statute. Can this be happening in America? So there are screenshots of, you know, F.U. Trump taken from a Twitter account. But I think this is kind of crucial. Judge Ngoron's wife told Newsweek She doesn't have a Twitter account. Well, that did not stop Trump. Oh, this is a tweet that Trump linked to by someone else. The Capitol cops beat the hell out of innocent January 6th protesters, and the videos are finally coming out. The cops should be charged, and the protesters should be freed. Um, Look. Even if you put aside the fact that 140 officers were assaulted on January 6, 2021, weren't the hundreds of protesters who have been charged with varying degrees of assault or interfering with law enforcement, weren't they legitimately prosecuted by the Justice Department and sentenced? I mean, this is another sort of play to the base. No, there was no riot. There was no insurrection. A lot of innocent people were arrested, and they should be freed. It's the cops that should be charged. And story number three, breaking news. This is just happening as I'm behind the microphone. The House has voted to expel George Santos. This is the third attempt, I believe. But what happened is his support collapsed. This is, the, of course, the fabricating uh, congressman from Long Island, whose many, many lies were not exposed by the New York Times until after he had been elected, despite the fact that the information was out there. Didn't go to the college, uh, he had claimed. Didn't work for the Wall Street firms. 
he had claimed. Wasn't on the volleyball team on the college. I mean, he wasn't Jewish, as he uh, claimed at one point. Goes on and on and on. But what happened is the House Ethics Committee did its job. In fact, if the vote had been not to expel Santos, who, by the way, becomes the first member of Congress ever expelled without a criminal conviction. But he does have a criminal indictment. Nevertheless, the House has to make its own decision, regardless of whether the prosecution is successful. So the Ethics Committee went over many documents, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages, and concluded Santos had broken the law, Santos had broken House rules, Santos had used money, campaign money, for personal expenses. And, you know, in classic George Santos fashion, some of them were hysterical. He used uh, campaign money to go on OnlyFans. He used campaign money for Botox treatments and designer fashions. Um, You know, he became just this sort of a comic figure for the media. And he loved the media attention. And, you know... Before the vote, yesterday, in fact, he had a news conference. And he had made clear, he had predicted he would probably be expelled. He said the votes were not looking good. And he was right. On that part, he told the truth. But, you know, you had, uh, the vote was 311 to 114 to expel in the House. Needed to reach a two-thirds majority. More Democrats than Republicans voting to uh, boot Santos, and if there was any doubt, because, you know, you get, like, motions to reconsider and things like that. Speaker Mike Johnson, who defended Santos, who said Santos should not be expelled, he took the podium in front of the chamber and said that the gentleman from New York was expelled because of the two-thirds majority vote. So when George Santos walked out of the House chamber, he was no longer a congressman. And, you know, if he had been retained, by the way, he could have avoided this by quitting not go down in the history books as the first member in a long time to be expelled, but also, as I said, one who had not yet been criminally convicted, although he had been indicted. And so at this news conference, he, he said, if I quit, they win. The bullies win. He wanted to go down fighting. Now, Santos has become enough a celebrity that he said he's going to write a book, and I'm sure we'll, we'll hear more from him in the future. He will trade on that celebrity, except, you know, if he is convicted, he could face prison time. So, you know, the House is wary of, of uh, setting a precedent that could be used against other members, but the fact is the members did their jobs. The Ethics Committee did its job. The Republicans... And this effort was led by New York Republicans from Long Island who considered the guy an albatross, who wanted him out of there. There'll obviously have to be a new election 
to see who fills that seat. But after what has really at times degenerated into a circus, but at its core had serious legal questions documented by the ethics panel about egregious, embarrassing, humiliating use of funds. And Santos didn't argue the facts. He just argued that it was a a smear campaign. It was a vendetta against him. Well, if you look at the details in the House Ethics Committee report, it wasn't a smear campaign. It was a careful, measured investigation. So former Congressman George Santos now goes and fights his legal battle. But all the lies and the fabrications, in the end, caught up with him. Story number four, whenever I'm wondering about what else I should cover in this podcast, somehow, frequently, repeatedly, endlessly, Elon Musk's name comes up. So this is a piece in Mediaite by Isaac Shore, who's writing I like. And it's a follow-up or it's an analysis about the go F yourself line repeated twice by the owner of X at that New York Times uh, deal book summit on Wednesday. And this piece says there was a wide variety of hysterical reactions. Now, much too much in this author's estimation has been made of Musk as a kind of conservative savior. As the head, at the head of X, Musk has been far too erratic to fulfill the promise of his initial takeover. And by the way, I've defended him on all kinds of controversies, and then come, along comes, you know, he's retaliating against journalists, he is uh, posting things that turn out not to be true or to be distorted, and then, of course, endorsing that anti-Semitic post accusing Jews of promoting hate against white people. Uh, Going back to the piece, despite his occasional endorsement of conservative policy or far-right conspiracy theory, Musk has an inconsistent worldview, you think, that is oftentimes antithetical to that of a majority of conservatives. Take his praise for and placation of the Chinese Communist Party. But there is some appeal in Musk's willingness to hold up a middle finger to the horde of critics who giddily report on his every failing or ill-advised utterance. Musk is a powerful public figure. His decisions and words carry weight. He gives the media plenty of material to work with, that's for sure. But it's obvious that the oversaturated coverage of Musk is attributable not just to the worthiness of each of the individual acts and remarks that he's responsible for, but to the press's palpable, all-consuming contempt for him. Even though he's mostly voted for Democrats and says he voted for Joe Biden last time and says he's not voting for Joe Biden next time, um, it is true. Much to most of the mainstream media, being to varying degrees left-leaning, just since since he was con- since Musk was considering buying Twitter 
have just, you know, hammered him as a right-wing troglodyte. And he's more sort of all over the map. More right than left these days, I would say, sure. And says inflammatory things. The anti-Semitic controversy being perhaps the worst example. And Musk himself said it was the worst um, tweet he'd ever posted. And he was sorry about that, which is great, except he should have done it the next day and not let this fester and so forth. So a guy at CNN writes, Musk killed Twitter long ago. It no longer exists. What currently sits in its place, X, is a deformed, warped version of the social media company. Like a zombie, X occupies the same body of Twitter, but its soul has long departed. Okay. Elon Musk must be a bad guy. He's killed its soul. He occupies its body. It's a zombie. Well, except that while some high-profile people have certainly quit Twitter, and everybody has that right, or just not to go to it, um, it's still pretty much more so, I would say, than Instagram or Facebook or maybe not TikTok, which obviously plays to a different audience, you know, the place where a national conversation takes place. The place where, sure, you know, you can make the case that it's a cesspool and there's too much anti-Semitic stuff and there's too much Nazi stuff and there's too much hate stuff and that during the war and during the surge in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic physical attacks, which we've talked about again and again, that it's... A rough neighborhood, shall we say. But, you know, before Musk ever got involved, people were ripping Twitter under the previous management for allowing hate speech, for allowing um, disinformation, for allowing falsehoods. It's not like this just started. You know, you'd argue at the margins and Musk made it worse. He took down or got rid of a lot of the Content moderators, but it's not like there was some golden era, except maybe at the very beginning when it wasn't the force it is now. So the media piece wraps up by saying the reason they make these overwrought pronouncements, using CNN as an example, but hardly limited to CNN, is mostly because Musk has run afoul of some of their most treasured orthodoxies about covid gender ideology, and the extent to which objectionable political speech should be regulated by private actors. Much of the media is pro-regulation. Critics would say pro-censorship. They want Musk and his lieutenants to stop all kinds of speech. And you remember, this goes back, and this isn't only about Twitter, it goes back to COVID. And Facebook was the one who said that barred um, arguments, even from, you know, experienced scientists, that the virus might have originated in the Wuhan lab or that, you know, taking on the shutting down of the whole country, not to mention schools and businesses, different states taking different approaches. Musk provides cover for the media by dabbling in ridiculous conspiracy theories and lashing out, as with the F-bombs. But 
his willingness to just say no to the kind of people who attend the New York Times Dealbook Summit tells us that even if Musk found financial success or were to mature, the media would still be after him. I think it's a really valuable perspective, and I think it's largely, not completely, and certainly, you know, I and others have criticized him when he needs to be criticized. But it's largely ideologically driven. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number five, last night on Fox, a much promoted debate, Ron DeSantis versus Gavin Newsom, the governor of Florida versus the governor of California. Now, Sean Hannity was the moderator. He said, everyone knows I'm a conservative. But I'm going to be fair, and he did try to be fair on this point and make sure that both men who, you know, got to talking over each other, you know, had something resembling equal time. I thought as messy as it got with all the interruptions and all that, it was a pretty good debate. For one thing, two-person two debate is better than a seven-person debate. Secondly, you know, I know everyone's like, oh, pick a winner. Who demolished who? I thought it was the feistiest I'd ever seen. Ron DeSantis, obviously it helps to have just one opponent. And I thought Gavin Newsom was very effective at hitting back. Now, here's what the New York Times says. Hannity pressed Newsom on his state's high tax rates, its loss of residents over the past two years, and its relatively high crime rate. And DeSantis backed up Hannity in his challenges to how California is run. It was an odd mismatched conversation since Newsom, who is not running for president, but would love to, tried hard to focus on the 2024 campaign that DeSantis is running. Newsom was talking up and defending President Biden's record on the economy, health care, immigration, and took swipes at DeSantis's struggling campaign. We have one thing in common says Gavin Newsom, neither of us will be the nominee for our party in 2024. That's obviously because, not because Gavin wouldn't like to be the nominee, but because President Biden is going to be the nominee, barring some unforeseen um, act. So he later talked about how Trump is leading DeSantis in Florida, in his home state. How's that going for you, Ron? You're 41 points down in your own state. Hannity asked Newsom at one point, is Joe Biden paying you tonight? I thought this was state versus state. This was billed as, you know, a red and blue state to the leading governors in America. Uh, according to the Times, I watched much of it. Uh, Newsom was kept on his heels for much of the night by Hannity. He hit Newsom on subject after subject, crime, immigration, taxes, education. And he appeared prepared. Now, this is DeSantis um, wanted to sort of discredit California as being a far worse and poorly managed state compared to Florida. And so a lot of the charts that were put up, particularly at the beginning, you know, made Florida look better than California. For example, zero income tax in Florida. It's one of its attractions. 
versus whatever the rate is in California. Uh, this whole business about more people leaving California that have left Florida, but Newsom comes back and says, well, when we just look at the two states, more have come from Florida to California than have gone from California to Florida. So, you know, everybody was cherry-picking their favorite statistics. And when it came to uh, DeSantis's handling of COVID, at least initially, Gavin Newsom said, you know, initially you did the right thing, but then you opened everything up. You caved to the far right. Tens of thousands of Floridians died because of your actions. And then at the end, Newsom said, when are you going to drop out and give Nikki Haley a chance to take on Donald Trump? She laid you out. Uh, Another segment in this uh, 90-minute debate, Sean Hannity said, Joe Biden has experienced significant cognitive decline. Time says he served up softballs to DeSantis while shutting down Newsom's attempts to defend himself. No, I don't think he shut down all the attempts. I do think a lot of this was framed in a way that it made it easier for DeSantis to go on the offensive. And it was the feistiest I have ever seen Ron DeSantis. If he had been like this in the admittedly more diffuse multi-candidate debates on the GOP side, the last one's supposed to be next week, at least the last one scheduled, this would be a very different campaign. He threw a lot of punches. He deflected a lot of punches. I got to say, it was entertaining, if messy. I thought both governors did well. DeSantis clearly had sort of the home field advantage. And I don't think it moved the needle very much. I don't think it somehow rescued DeSantis's campaign against Donald Trump. But it was national exposure for DeSantis and for Gavin Newsom as well, who, if he doesn't end up running this time around, you know, 2028, he'll be in that race. Mark my words. Also, a lot of other people at that point. All right. I guess I have uh, settled down here. Listen, thanks so much. Uh, these are perilous times. And I'm trying to have the podcast reflect that as well as, um, you know, other entertaining things. For example, uh, just before we go, uh, you know, I talked about how Jeff Zucker, uh, Jeff Zucker with money from Abu Dhabi, uh, buying two UK publications, The Spectator and The Telegraph newspaper. However, British authorities have just announced that they're conducting an investigation to make up standard, make sure standards are upheld. So it's not a done deal. It sounded like a done deal. All the money involved made it sound like a done deal. We'll see where the Brits come down. Thanks again for listening. Have a great weekend. Media Buzz on Fox, 11 Eastern, Sunday morning. See you back here Monday with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 